Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Welcome to Parshat Tazria, where we hear lots about Sara'at, which is usually translated as leprosy, and uh, it's pretty much all I have to say about that. Do I say anything else about Parshat Tazria? <laughs> yes, it's but you're also, not, got. you're also not starting at the right, this isn't the right place. Yeah. Yeah, you said 13, 3 through 4. I know, but so you have to summarize the Parsha before we get to our verses. I don't have to do anything. You, can't tell, you, you leave for two weeks and you just come back and you start telling me what to do. I mean, I, I opened up verse uh, chapter 13 because chapter 12 is not particularly germane to what we will be exploring today. The first chapter of this Parsha is talking about various um, methods for becoming Tahor after contracting Tum'ah. Uh, we talked about this a little bit with Jackie last week in terms of we usually translate Tahor and Tema as pure and impure. It's, of course, more complicated than that. Um, translation is always interpretation. But basically, uh, starting off particularly after childbirth, um, what the um, woman, what sort of required of the woman um, depending on the sex of the child um, and how long that period uh, of time it needs to last. I don't have much more to say about it than that. Maybe Rabbi Schatz does. I mean, I love this topic mostly because I think that Nita is really, is really interesting. Um, but I don't have so much more to say about like the, the particular Parsha pieces. Um, so you can take us straight to our verses if you want. Matt, make sure you go back to talk about these verses. Great, here are these verses. Do you have anything to say? Nope. All right, well, good talk. Glad we just had those 90 seconds. Um, Meanwhile, back in chapter 13, um, we're going to start, I don't know why Rabbi Schatz picked these verses, but she knows why, so we'll get into them. Right, Rabbi Schatz? Yep. Okay. Uh, Didn't you miss doing this with me so much? How much did you miss doing this with me? Between so much and so, so much. So, so much. That's right. Okay. Um, I do have to say that I have missed Parsha, like studying, right? Like uh, for the past few weeks, I haven't had this as a centerpiece of of my week. And so it's really interesting to come back right in time for Tazri and Mitzorah, but <laughs> to, come, to come back into Parsha um, and to be able to learn it with all of you. Is you, you and Rabbi Klickfeld weren't learning the Parsha in depth on the bus in Drome, America? Well, we got to, we got to New Orleans for Shabbat. So we, he gave a drosh, he gave a drosh on Friday, I mean, Saturday, sorry, um, on the Parsha, but no, we did not study Parsha. Okay, I'll take us through the verses since Rabbi Shabbat seems to be distracted. So we're going to look at verse 3. Um, and the reason that I picked these verses is because it, I, I think that part of what's so interesting about Tame and Tahor is how do you know um, when you are Tame and how do you know when you are Tahor? Um, and part of what we're going to see in these verses is that the priest was very involved in that 
decision. And as we all know, as professional, um, you know, ritual, spiritual people, um, that doesn't mean that we're doctors. That's actually what it says on my business card. Professional, (laughs) ritual, spiritual. Rabbi Matt Shapiro, professional, ritual, spiritual person. But we're not doctors. And yet. And also not a doctor. For the past few years, we have been, you know, talking about a a pandemic in a way that we want to be keeping our congregation and our community safe, but also using medical professionals because unlike what we're going to see in the Torah right here, we don't feel like we can be the ones to make those decisions given that we don't have any medical background or um, or uh, Right, but that, but that also gets to the question of, is Tzara'at a medical condition, which the rabbis talk a lot right. about, right? Tzara'at is usually translated as leprosy, but looking, I mean, I don't want to blow the punchline of Tzara'at too much since we're talking about it both this week and next week. Thank you so much, Leap Year. Um, you know, a, a, a dwelling can also contract Tzara'at. And generally, houses don't get leprosy, right? So there seems to be some question as to, even though that is the closest analog to thinking about this, because it's talked about as a type of skin condition. Um, and again, since I'm not a doctor, I don't know in depth what the different types of leprosy are. Um, but but it's also worth asking the question, well, what what is this actually? Okay, so let's get to the actual verses. Why don't you take us through them? By the way, that was the preschool office calling me, and I was worried because I have a preschooler, and so I'm always worried. They were calling to see if Gesher could stop by my office to say Shabbat Shalom, which is so nice. They will come by after the class, um, and we can send them over to Rabbi Shatz, and maybe to Renee's, and she can be Kala with them. Um, what are we doing? Right, Parsha. Okay, chapter 13. Uh, the Lord spaketh unto Moshe and his bro, Aaron, saying... Uh, when a person has on on the skin of his flesh a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it is on uh, translating this is so weird, and it's on his the skin of his body a a mark, a nega, like a a, a tsaraat wound. Oh, blemish! Very good, thank you, blemish. Um, and he is brought to Aaron, who's the priest or one of Aaron's sons, dot, dot, dot. Um, The priest sees the blemish on the skin of his flesh. And when the hair that's on the blemish turns white and the priest sees that the blemish is deeper on the skin of his flesh, yea, verily, it's a blemish of Tzara'at. And the priest sees it and declares him to be Tameh, translated here as unclean. Um, by the way, so these are the two, ver- that's verse three. We're diving into verses three and four of chapter 13. Uh, verse four, the Imbaheret Levanahi, if uh, it is a particularly bright white spot, or Sarah, on the skin of his flesh, the Amok in mar uh, mar eha min haor, and it it doesn't seem to be deeper than the skin. Usaara lo hafachavan, and the and the hair has not the hair on the spot of the blemish has not turned white. 
Behizgir hakohem et hamnega shivat yamim. The priest shall um, close. Uh, I read something interesting um, that that sort of uh, opened this translation up for question, but I'll read it as it's translated. Um, the priest shall um, enclose him, um, shall quarantine him, one might say, in the parlance of our times um, for seven days. Shabbat shalom. Very great. Anything you want to say about it? Anything you want to say? About it? <laughs> okay, great. Um... No, I, I mean, yeah, like, like Rabbi Shaz picked these verses. You can you can feel my excitement about them radiating through Zoom. Um, and Gesher is here, so I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Schatz for Kuchino. Are you serious? Yep, okay. I am. All you right. got this. You're great. Great. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Um, so, okay, let's take some Kushiot and then uh, and then I will I will in fact explain a little bit more about the verses. So, any questions on these verses, whether about potentially why we <laughs> picked them um, or or what they're actually about? Yeah, Denise. So, besides that it's just gross, yeah. but um, I feel like, like I guess, attached to the gross part is is there's like a certain amount of shame that uh-huh. I feel like comes with it. And, and I feel like that even came, you know, like you're talking about COVID and the pandemic, and there was like a lot of shaming going on of like, you know, if somebody sneezed or even if somebody got COVID, it was like, yeah. you don't tell people and all this kind of stuff. Um, and and that doesn't seem like such a great thing. Like, couldn't we accomplish these goals without shame? Great question. So I, I think you're right that there, it doesn't come off the page with language and with shame, but you're right that there's this feeling, there's this connotation for sure of shame. And I actually think this is part of why I brought these verses. I actually think that a lot of that has to be very cute. I actually think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have to go to the priest, right? That you can't just go to like, I don't know, your parent and say, I have a cold. Can I stay home from school today? You have to go to a doctor. And if we're going to connect it to COVID, I actually, I at least felt a shift in terms of people's shame around testing positive when they could take a test at their house versus versus having to go somewhere, get tested, send in results. So I don't know that that's true. Like I, I've, I haven't read any studies on that, but I do wonder if it's in your hands, right? The having the um, the power to not necessarily decide, but but kind of share that information versus going somewhere, getting tested because you have um, because you have symptoms and then being told that you are positive, that in a certain way feels, feels a little bit more, um, I guess shameful, yeah. but also and like powerful. Of, like how it's phrased, right? Like, you know, he shall look upon him and pronounce him. And, exactly. and there's no like, give him a hug, you know, like right. hold his hand, you know, like, like I, I had a doctor's thing once and, and I had a spider bite, but she thought it was inflammatory cancer. And this woman in the urgent care, and she just looked at me. She didn't even hold my hand. Right. She looked at me. She drew a big purple circle on my body. And she said, you have a mass like that. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, like I just felt so I cried for like days. I didn't even want to read like the after summary that they give you at Kaiser, you know, and it, it turned out she was an idiot and thank God, but like, 
it just felt so horrible, you know, yeah. and, I, and I feel like maybe I'm just bringing my own story to this, but it feels like the Cohen does the same thing. Like there's no, yes. Hey, sit down. Let's talk about this. Like, you know, yeah, I, I totally. And I think that there's also, there's also not, um, uh, sterile's not the word that I'm looking for, but very, um, uh, like it's very diagnostic, right? Like this is what you have. Clinical. No, like as what? Clinical. Clinical. Thank you. Um, I think I was trying to think of that word the other day and you helped me think of it. So maybe clinical is just a word I can't think of. Um, yeah, I'm just a clinical guy. Yeah. But, but you're right that there is something, you know, Robert Shapiro just put in the, in the chat F minus for bedside manner, right? Like that, it's true, right? When you need to be able to to help a person feel as though you are really um, supporting them and helping them through something, not just telling them what uh, what is what's going on in <laughs> in their in their life in terms of their health. Um, yeah, Renee, you're muted. Who decides who decides how white the skin is or how deep the appearance of the hair is, like? How I mean, if he has one strand of white and one white dot, does that make him uh, unclean? Great question. You mean so, like, depending on size versus versus like there at all? Is that what you mean? You you muted yourself, so I can't hear you. Size or quantity? Yeah. Of the whiteness, both yeah. in the skin and in the hair. I mean, who makes the determination how Great. much it's is actually uh, considered the higher up. Right. I mean, it seems, it seems as though that any kind of Sarat is determined by the priest, which again, to me feels pretty silly because a priest is not a doctor. Um, so that, that seems to be the case. I am sure this is not the direction that I was looking at in terms of commentary. So I didn't see any on this. Um, but I'm sure that there are many commentaries on what, you know, who was deciding and how big and how deep into the skin and how white, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was focusing more on the priest part, so I didn't see those commentaries. Um, but yeah, it seems as though, again, the priest is the one who's making those those decisions. Um, okay, any other? Yeah, Paula. So it it seems to me that in many cultures, you have healers who are priests. You have shaman. Yeah. You have, um, it, and so it doesn't seem that unusual to me yeah. that the priest is the person who's looking at your skin or uh-huh. or the discoloration or the growth or something like that. And so it seems consistent with, you know, just a whole tradition of healing. Yeah. That has nothing that's that's valid as well. And, and they didn't have medical school medical school in the ancient Near East, from what I know, right? Like that, like there might have been people who were specifically trained in stuff, but I think things are more um, professionalized and specialized now than they used to be. I think, right? Like we have a disintegrated sense of what health is you know like i i don't think we can necessarily so easily separate out physical health from emotional health from spiritual health 
right? Those things are connected. There's a, there's a reason that there's a robust and wonderful spiritual care department at Cedar sinai Medical Center, including a particularly skilled, uh, lovely young rabbi who works there, um, you know, because, because spiritual health is connected, right? It, it's not to say that you can like pray a disease away and we got to take care of our whole selves. You know, I, I think it's, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily a polarity. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, the, there are definitely like healers and we even see this in today's world of people, not just wanting a doctor, but wanting like a doula, right. Or wanting um, a chaplain or wanting a rabbi, right. To come and be part of the healing process. Um, so it definitely doesn't, definitely doesn't come out of left field. I think the thing that's so interesting to me about this particular case in the Torah, though, is that a priest is the one deciding whether or not you are part of the community or not, right? And to me, like, when I, when I think of the priest's role in in that time, but also if we're going to equate it to a rabbi's role in today's time, even as Denise was saying, like, even as people felt separate and still do feel separate from a community during COVID, I feel very strongly that it's our job to make sure that even if they're distant, that they feel connected. Um, and so it, it was a very stark comparison to me that a priest was the one who was saying, no, stay away, um, and not necessarily doing anything to make them feel close. I also have now lived in these two partiot for like 10 days because I prepared for this class. I'm teaching Sue Ashley sheet tomorrow. We have Hamalot tomorrow morning. And I wrote the table of five for Jewish journal, which you have to submit two weeks in advance. So I've been talking about Tame and Tahor. I thought you said you were missing being a part of the Parsha. And now 10 minutes later, you tell me you only focus on this Parsha. And, and what um, I wrote about for table of five actually has to do with the priest, um, the, the priest kind of being very, um, very, I don't know, um, unavailable and the person, the leper being the one who has to kind of get themselves to the priest. So it just, it's an interesting way of thinking about communal leadership and spiritual leadership. So I agree with you, Paula, and just wish he was doing a little bit of a better job of being a healer and not just a diagnostician. And I, my other question, which I hope you'll talk about is the and I know we've talked about it many times and still interesting to me, I guess, because I, I can't, I'm trying to wrap my head around it about yeah. pure and impure, clean and unclean. Yeah, totally. And I think Jackie had another, you know, ex- um, description or definition of it last time. And I, and I can't remember it, but it was like, oh, that's an interesting way to look at it as well. So but, tomorrow afternoon at Sue Ashley Sheet, my whole class is about Tame and Tahor. And oh, the yeah, and the different ways that we can that we can define Tame and Tahor. But yeah, I... Um, she's, she's like fit and not yet fit. It was something yeah, so like that's that. Exactly, that's how Rabbi Eddie Feinstein defines it, that, you know, we walk around in the world as Tame all the time. Um, and the reason that that's good, actually, and okay, is because that means that we are interacting with mitzvot that make us tame, right? We are reproducing, we are um, dealing with dead bodies, we are um, dealing with creepy crawly things, right? Like anything that makes you tame. Don't talk about my kids that way. 
Um, anything that makes you tame means that you're living in the world. And so if you are tahor, this is the way that Rabbi Feinstein, and there's a little bit of a spoiler for tomorrow, but the way that Rabbi Feinstein defines it. And by the way, just a side note, um, Rab, uh, Rabbi Klickfeld, I think, or maybe Rabbi Lucas, I don't remember. Someone asked me for my first drosh at Temple Befam when I was an intern to give my first formal drosh, not teaching, but my first formal drosh. Was it your Tazria, first formal drosh? On, my, on Tazria Mitzorah. <laughs> and so I spoke on this Farsha because they didn't want to. Um, and I was talking to Rabbi Feinstein about it because um, at the time he was my teacher. And one of the things, the beautiful things that he said was that the reason that we that back in the day when there was the temple, we needed to give sacrifices when we were Tahor was because we actually needed that spiritual closeness. Whereas if we think of Tameh as being out in the world with people doing mitzvot, that is in and of itself a spiritual closeness, but it doesn't avail you of the of the um, the opportunity to go toward the temple. So in today's day, when we don't have the temple, it's actually perfectly wonderful and maybe even better to be Tame because that means that you're out in the world interacting with humans. Um, whereas if you are Tahor, that means that you're sitting home, not doing anything. And anytime you are exposed to something, you go to the mikvah, which takes up time. So it's a very interesting, it's definitely not how we talk about Tame and Tahor in terms of Nida, um, but it is a very interesting way of thinking about the categories of Tame and Tahor and taking them away from like the icky factor of of Tame being unclean, which it just definitely is not, and Tahor as being clean, um, but rather spiritually available and already spiritually um, like participating and involved. Um, but more on that tomorrow afternoon. Okay, so uh, Rabbi Shapiro, I know I'm in charge, but I just spoke a lot. Do you want to share anything on these verses before I do, or do you want me to just share all the things on the verses? I'll I'll share. Sure, I'll yeah. Okay. I'm, 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 I remember that so well, Paula. It's funny that you said that. I remember that. What? what huh? What? Paula just oh. just chatted me personally. I mean, privately. That oh. one of my really close friends, who she's also family friends with, had his bar mitzvah parsha on Tazria Mitzora, and I remember that really very clearly because his mother. Um, is a very funny person. And I remember him getting up or her getting up and giving him his blessing at his bar mitzvah and saying something along the lines of, sorry that we gave you this bar mitzvah parsha where you had to talk about penises. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and that was, that was her. No one else would have done that to their 13 year old son, but that was her. I mean, of the things to apologize for talking about in this parsha, I wouldn't focus on that part. Chapter 12 for a 13 year old boy to have to focus on, on like, discharges that women may have after childbirth, I think would be the thing that I would yeah, have. When you're 13 with. years old, I think the other thing is a little bit more embarrassing. Okay. Anyway, continue. You've never been a 13 year old boy. You don't know that. I lived with three of them. So I, I know them pretty well. Okay. Continue. There were three 13 year old boys. Yes. Currently. No, I lived. Oh, it was a past tense. Okay. Can you continue? You missed me so much. Oh, um, uh, one grammary thing that I thought was interesting. One, um, 
symbolism thing that I thought was interesting and one recapitulation of the high priest thing that seemed interesting. None of them are long, but but I found I found them to be interesting. And then Rabbi Schatz will really teach and or tell me why I'm wrong. Probably both. Um, I want to go to verse four. I, m- I mentioned this as I was translating them. And this just looked, this was just something that caught my eye in terms of a, a grammar thing that was interesting because particularly now we're kind of wired to, we're particularly wired to see things as quarantined. Um, and it's how it's translated here. Like the last phrase of verse four says, which is usually translated as, um, and the priest will quarantine this person for seven days. But if you actually look at the shot and that's, and that's how it, like if, if you safari it or you just look in the commentary, right? Like this is how Rashi understands it. And Rashi is often like the normative baseline for how commentators in turn think about it, right? Every, everybody's in conversation with Rashi, right? Whether they agree with him or disagree with him, most commentators are usually in conversation with Rashi. And this is how Rashi understands it, right? That the priest, while in close, shall shut him up, shall quarantine him in one house and shall not see him. That, that's how Rashi understands it. And most commentators fall in line with Rashi on it. But it's not actually what the shot of the verse says, right? What it says is the priest should enclose the blemish, right? Hanega. Um, it doesn't say that the priest should enclose... Um, like the person who is being impacted, like which would be the menuga, it says hanega shivat yamin. Basically sort of similar to, hopefully less traumatic, but similar to what Denise has described. Like if you th- think about if you have a, have like an infection, right? They like draw a circle around it, right? To kind of track it, see if it's shrinking or staying the same size. Um, so I, I don't have like much of a like, drosh on that other than to just sort of note the comment that it's interesting how sometimes even like the grammatical shot of the verse once it gets interpreted one way that becomes the normative um way of understanding it and i just think it's interesting that in and by the way it also seems like less extreme right it's that if this is a skin condition particularly right because verse four seems to be less you know, less extreme than verse three, right? Because verse four is saying, yeah, if there's some discoloration, but it's not deeper than the skin and the hair hasn't turned white, really still you have to quarantine for a full week? No, right? If we if we read the actual shot of the verse, the way it's written, um, it just says, yeah, keep an eye on it, <laughs> right? Like, like make sure it doesn't get worse. Um, but going back into the shot of the verse actually seems to like, kind of le- lessen that a bit. So I thought, I thought that that was an interesting point. Um, I, I, never, I never paid attention to that probably because it's grammar and I'm not great at it, but um, that is, that's really awesome. But, I, and by the way, it's from, so usually, so it's from Itura Torah, which uh, Adam Klickfeld's uh, favorite uh, compilation of comments that he's always stealing from my office. Um, he still, still, still owes me a gimmel, I think, but I haven't been able to find it. Um, but usually, like 99 plus percent of the time, the, the author of this compilation just sort of brings other people's comments. This is his comment, right? Like, it, like he doesn't attribute it to anyone else. It's actually his comment. Um, he sources it. He says, he says it's from, um, 
from the Roche, um, but but it's his comment, which I just thought is interesting. So, you know, even even the accumulated weight of our tradition um, sometimes needs to be sort of course corrected a little bit. So I, I think that that's interesting. Um, okay. Yes, Paula. So you know what that brings to mind for me is that. Um, we're not always our worst act. Like we can make a mistake and we can, we can um, repair it or we can try and repair it or we can act differently. But that, so here we have this, you know, blemish and we're, we're isolated or quarantined from the community, but, and it doesn't have to, it, it just, I just think of like, Sometimes your only experience with people is in their worst moment. And then you think that's who they are. That's how they are. They never change. And then you realize, well, maybe that's not true. Right. <laughs> and that we're not always our worst act or we're not always the the most harm we've done. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually going to. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that as a jumping off point to one of the other things I was going to bring. That's okay. Uh, oh, Renee has a comment. Renee, I'm going to say the thing I was going to say, and then you can say your things. All gave me a great segue. Um, I'm very focused on the specific meaning of the verses today. As everyone knows, I am I am deeply thorough in my understanding of biblical Hebrew. That's what everyone always says about me. Um, right, Rabbi Shantz? Yeah. Yeah, she's not paying attention. Okay. I am paying attention. I'm no, just no, trying no, not to feed your you're fire not, on You're not yeah. paying attention. Yeah. Um, so getting back into the specifics of the Hebrew, if you look back in verse three, there's a, a doubling of a verb, right? And we know this from our conversations that everything's in the Torah for a reason. Of course, every phrase, every word, every letter, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at verse three, the Kohen sees twice, right? So the Kohen sees at the beginning of the verse, the Ra'aha Kohen Tanaga, right? Like the, the Kohen sees the blemish. And then at the end, the Ra'ahu HaKohen, the Ra'ahu HaKohen, the Tima Oto, that the Kohen sees a second time, right? So you our rabbinically trained minds then automatically think, okay, why, why does he need to see twice, right? What's, what's the second seeing? Um, and there's a few different comments on this and I'll, I'll sort of like steer this a little bit in the direction of Sara'at isn't just a skin affliction, right? Sara'at seems to be indicating something deeper than just leprosy. And I don't know if Rabbi Schatz is going to bring any of that stuff. Um, but uh, are you going to bring, are you going to talk about the different things about what leprosy can mean? You mean like Lashon Hara and stuff? Yes. No. No, I just feel like people know it, so I didn't focus on it. You don't know that. You know that people know that. Don't make assumptions. Um, Oftentimes, leprosy is understood as being a reflection of one's psycho-spiritual condition as well, um, and is often attributed the the disorder itself is often attributed to speaking lashon hara to to not speaking kindly about others, Um, and so. Um, the Meshech Chochmah um, talks about how the the second seeing here isn't about what's on the surface necessarily, but it's about some bless you, um, something deeper. That the the Kohen's seeing of this person, that there's something about the priest 
that he's able to look at this person and not just see what's on his skin, but what's happening more deeply with him, like his, his matzap, his, his condition, like how, how he is. And if it's both, right, it's not just about what's on his skin, but if there's something on his skin and the Kohen does sort of this deeper looking at who this person is, and there's something off with both of those, then that's the point at which the Kohen declares him to be impure, right? Still an F minus on bedside manner. Right? Let's be clear about that. Um, and interesting to think about how the the second seeing um, opens up the conversation a little more deeply of, of what's really going on with this person. I'm going to layer one more piece on top of that. It's the last thing I'll, I'll sort of offer. And then Renee is going to say what she's going to say. And then Rabbi Schatz is going to shots it up, um, which is, there was an interesting question that I saw was raised asking why white? Because white, if you're thinking about in the context of pure or impure, white is usually pure, pure right? Like we dress in white and Yom Kippur, right? aspirational, we're going to be pure like the angels. Um, so why would it be that if there is something problematic happening, that that it would turn white, right? Mm-hmm. That, the, that the patch would turn white, that the hair would turn white, et cetera. Um, and it was just an interesting kind of riffing on a, a quote from the Gemara that people might have heard, that someone who embarrasses his friend so that his face turns white, it is as if he has spilled blood, which is held up as one of the primary sources for why speaking Lashon Haraf or why speaking badly about others is, is considered to be such a heinous act. And then the connection made is um, right? that, that basically the, the punishment essentially should fit the crime. So if you are someone who causes someone's face to become white, then what will happen is you will turn white yourself. Right. And then it's kind of this indicator of um, what's really going on there and therefore what must be done to kind of remedy that situation. So I had never seen those pieces kind of lined up in that way before. Um, and I thought that in terms of thinking about Sarat as an indicator of Lashon Hara um, and also thinking about this idea of you know, wellness as something that's integrated. Right. Not just what's happening on your body, but sort of your deeper condition um, and how that lines up with what you have or haven't done. Um, I just thought those were some interesting pieces. That's uh, I like the I like the connection to the loss of blood from your face, which, by the way, I think is such a funny thing because I think when at least when I get embarrassed, I turn red, not white. Yeah, you um, do. But <laughs> um, but the, I think that's it's just an interesting yeah it's an interesting connection to the color piece. Yeah, for sure. Renee, I don't know if we've bulldozed past whatever you were going to say, but I still want to give you the floor. Well, um, I was c- concerned that, uh, it, that they didn't mention anything about the emotional piece of the person who they talk about what he looked like, but what about what he's feeling? And I was thinking when you were talking about the color that, um, that sometimes people, when they feel afraid, fearful, or they feel like they're going to pass out, they turn white. Right, right. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think to go back to, I think it was Denise to go back to, you know, the idea of we don't really know the emotional repercussions of what's happening in this at all. We just hear about kind of, again, the clinical parts of diagnosing a person and telling them they have to stay away, but we don't actually hear about the, the, the feelings or the um, emotional drain on the person based on what the priest says, you know, if we're going to take this to the mental and spiritual health piece of our, of our program, um, this is still happening specifically for our teens during COVID, right? Like, and then, and also for adults, but we're hearing about it a lot with our teens, um, in terms of mental health and being cooped up and, um, and, and also the reverse of like going, going back into social settings and not knowing how to deal with that and having anxiety around that. Um, and just unfortunately, you know, suicide rates going up and, and, um, isolation being something that, that kids are feeling more comfortable with than, than being in social settings, which is not what we want for children. So, um, yeah, that's, it's happening all over the place and we don't hear about that in the Torah, but, I can only imagine that someone being told they have to be in isolation, especially by a, a higher up authority might feel really bad. Right. Might not. It's feel also like- the priest is also a very subjective opinion. It's just a priest. What if, enough, you know, another priest might not think that they needed to do that. I mean, I think, yeah. the, the, I, I think it's definitely in the shot level, like in the, the context of the verse problematic. And I think that's why there are, some sources that come in from the rabbis talking about like, what's the actual role of the priest here? I mean, I think that's part of what Rabbi Schacht was asking about at the beginning of the class. Um, And I think that, you know, all responses are coming out of an explicit or implied question. Right. And I think one of the certainly at least implied question is, well, what qualifies the priest to be able to do this? And I think reframing this, not just as a physical condition, but as like a sort of deeper condition and that therefore assumed and kind of baked into this response is that because of the high priest's stature that well man uh, there were only men back in the day uh, that man has the ability to look deeply and get a sense of what's going on with this person that that is kind of the qualification now we can have a conversation about what whether or not that actually happened right and what would make that person qualified to be able to diagnose it but within at least a lot of the sources that i were seeing that's that's what the rabbis are indicating. Rabbi Shetz, I don't, I don't know if you saw it differently or, or corroborate that, but that's, that's a lot of what I was seeing. Yeah. Yeah, Denise. When Rabbi Shapiro talked about men, it just made me think about, um, I don't know, like issues of modesty and concealing and all these kinds of things. And I just wonder, is there anything that talks about, you know, I mean, because if you think about, like the way people dressed in those days and the way people interact and stuff, like most of a person is covered, like who's really going to know if you have a little white thing somewhere, like, you know, so, I mean, was there enforcement of these things or is there anything written about, you know, if you have a white dot and you don't tell anyone, do you you get carried or something or like, how does that all work? Because also like if it's, if it's something you could easily hide, and maybe, you know, your husband or wife is like, okay with it and going to keep your secret. And otherwise you have to go into isolation indefinitely. Like how many people are really going to do that? Yeah, I, I don't, 
I don't know, maybe Raj Shapiro knows, but I don't know of anything that talks about kind of what, whose responsibility it was to come forward. My guess is that people felt as though similar to COVID, actually, that they felt as though if this was something they were dealing with, that it was safe. It was only safe, sorry, for them to take care of it as opposed to walking around with it because it was supposed to be highly infectious. So um, my guess is that if someone saw it on their own body, they so this thing is the white dot thing is infectious. It's yeah, it's supposed to have taken over. I mean, you know, the Torah even talks about how it affected your whole home and your clothes and oh, wow. right, it's supposed to have really spread very quickly. So I'm sure it doesn't make sense then if it's also like saying that people got this from Lashonara, then like, how do you know you didn't just get it because someone was walking around infectious? Like, Right, right, totally. I mean, the Lashon Hara piece is is Midrash, right, and, and is trying to make meaning of why people would have actually... I don't know. I think, I think Lashon Hara can be pretty contagious. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm just saying, like, I, I well, think... Like the story with the flower, uh, flowers, feathers. Feathers, yeah. Feather story. Right, right. No, I'm just saying, I think it's, you know, it wasn't like you spoke Lashon Hara and then a white blemish showed up you know, in terms of actual medical, Ravi Shapiro thinks that that's what happened. I don't think that's what there happened. There are commentaries that talk about that. that, that I, understand, I understand. I'm just saying that. Rabbi Shatz hates what I brought. No, I'm <laughs> literally putting words into my mouth. No, but I just, I think. Rabbi Shatz loves what I brought. I think that what, what you are getting at, Denise, that, uh, that is so important to, to think about is who, who has the responsibility and how do you take that responsibility seriously, right? The person clearly had to go to the priest themselves um, and say, this is something I found on my body. Because as you're, as you're pointing out, unless it was on your face, it probably wasn't something that other people were noticing. And so you were taking that responsibility to keep other people safe, but also kind of outing yourself um, in such a way that, that other people might not have known, except for they could have caught it from you potentially. So it, it, yes, I I think it's um it's all very easily connected to the world that we've lived in recently, but also uh, probably metaphorical for ways in which we we deal with our own responsibilities of how we interact in the world with our bodies and and the health of our bodies, etc. Um, okay, it's eleven fifty-two, so I want to share one text of the many that I prepared. Um, but this has been a really great conversation, so I'm I'm glad that we that we had it. So this, um, I had never heard this particular text connected to the sugiya from the Gemara that I'm, that I'm going to show you right now. Um, but I think it's very interestingly, um, I don't know, connected. This is, so the Orachaim is writing this as a commentary, but brings in a part from Masechet Shabbat uh, on page 119. That is a story that you've probably heard before, uh, but I've never heard it connected to this part of Torah. So I'm just going to read in the English for uh, time's sake. So when the priest takes a look at the person who has this blemish, he declares him ritually impure. Okay. The Torah made the impurity conditional on the priest declaring him so. This reminds us of a statement in Shabbat 119 from the Gemara that two angels accompany a person on their way home from the synagogue on Friday night, and they examine if this person had made the preparations for Shabbat prior to going to the synagogue. 
if one if one did if they made the preparations one angel com- commends the person the good angel exclaims may you continue to do so and the second angel who represents the negative you know the yetsar hara the negative actions of you um in in cartoons the devil on that shoulder one's earthly inclinations as opposed to one's highest self says amen the reverse happens when the person in question had not made made preparations for shabbat before the onset of shabbat at any rate the talmud suggests that once a positive or negative momentum has been built it feeds upon itself unless something contrary happens seeing that it is the Seeing that it is the priest's duty to obtain atonement for Israel from their impurities, diseases, etc., God has commanded the person to concur with the judgment of impurity the afflicted person has been subjected to. This state of impurity will continue until the afflicted person turns into a penitent when God will remove the symptoms of impurity from them. I just thought this was a very interesting way of talking about kind of that responsibility. Um, I don't love that it's being connected to if someone is halakhically prepared for Shabbat or not, because um, I think that should be a personal thing, not a not a public thing. But I love the idea of of these angels um, that are that are accompanying you, um, being representative of our closeness to to God in terms of how we are aware of that, which we are also dealing with, um, as Rabbi Shapiro said, kind of in our earthly state um, in terms of this Sarat. Does anybody have any comments on this? Um, I, I'm trying to, hold on. What, what's happening here? Well, okay. While you try to figure out, Paula was shaking her head. So do you have something to say about it, Paula? No. Okay. Yes, Rabbi Shapiro, what is your what is your kushia? I don't, know what, I, don't know, I don't know what's happening. What's going on? So Shabbos is coming. The person does the thing. Shabbos, has already, Shabbos has already come. Good, vi- good vibes or no good vibes, that impacts how your Shabbos is going to go. Great. And then what's the Tzara'ad connection here? So the priest then, who is, God has commanded him to concur with the judgment of impurity, meaning that's God's judgment of impurity because the person is Tzara'ad. So the priest needs to agree with it. Is that what's being indicated? Needs to agree with what? God has commanded him to concur with the judgment of impurity the afflicted person has been subjected to. What uh-huh. what judgment? I think of having sarad. That having sarad is the judgment. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh-huh. I think so. But then, what does it mean for the person to turn into a penitent? What's that process? I think that's the process of going to the priest and finding a way to then become Tahor. At least that's how I read it. Meaning you, you then find that connection, that closeness, you then rid yourself of whatever it was that, that made you Tameh with Sarad in the first place, therefore becoming Tahor and then, and therefore closer to God, which again, no. is not the way that I translate Tameh and Tahor, but that's how this is. Right, right, right. This is, this is Orachayim on this verse. This is, yeah. So he doesn't become an, he doesn't become just because it's Shabbat, he doesn't become pure again. 
No, no, no. So the, the, the Shabbat piece is just a story trying to get us to understand the way in which the connection to, they're using angels here, but the connection to a higher power, to some kind of divine being in like a very personalized, um, judgmental way, right? That, that those angels walk home with you from Shabbat because they're supposed to check on your Shabbat preparations. Again, I don't, I don't love the fact that, that the angels are accompanying you because they want to make sure that you are following the letter of the law in terms of being Shomer Shabbat. I do like the idea of angels following you home so that you have this connection with uh, with the divine in terms of you entering into Shabbat. And so what I think the move that's being made here is when we approach the priest, right, in order to say, I am Tameh, can you help me become Tahor? That that is your kind of... Um, your uh your claim that you need that connection in order to become um spiritually connected or prepared uh in terms of your relationship with god bonnie i was taken with the idea of the positive or negative momentum yeah that really is true that if you're doing positive things you're more likely to continue doing that Sure. And the same with, with the negative that we do feed upon. If we're in a bad mood, it takes some kind of something to, you know, get us out of that. Sure. Um, and that maybe that's how that's connected with the, I don't know, how it's connected with the impurities. And Yeah. I mean, you could, if you have sarat and you don't go to the priest, you could stay in that impu- impure state for a long time because you haven't gone towards the priest to figure out how you're going to, how you're going to remove yourself from that state. Again, this, this commentary, because the rabbis like to use um, the, the language of impure versus pure, we're seeing here the negative versus positive connotation of those things. But really, if we're, if we're going to talk about a, a certain kind of readiness versus a state of, of um, kind of perpetual uh, connection that, that you, that you see that, that, as you're saying, like that momentum to, if you don't have a connection, you're probably going to stay not connected unless you're brought in. Versus if you feel like you already have that connection, you probably are going to do things to maintain it. So that I think that's what the Orachim is saying here, maybe in a nicer way than than he's saying it. <laughs> but that's what I got out of it, uh, the positive that I got out of it. Um, all right. I, I'm going to conclude this unless Rabbi Shabbat is very excited to um by do the bow saying, on do the bow do the bow um I, bow. I really I, I can stop sharing my screen I really hope that even though these parshiot are not particularly exciting nor pleasant to read through um I do think that there's something very powerful about thinking thinking that our Torah has taken the time to focus on the ways in which we affect those around us, whether that's through our bodies or through our speech or through the ways in which we interact with our leadership, right? That, that our actions and our, um, like holding ourselves in the world makes a difference. And what are we doing to, to make that a positive difference as opposed to um, one that could be either hurtful or, or less positive. I won't say negative uh, in, in the world. And how are we connecting to those who can help us continue that positivity?
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.